Last week, um, some of you might have got uh, Monday off, I don't know, uh, Martin Luther King Day. It's been actually 57 years since uh, Martin Luther King gave that famous speech, and that's, that's amazing to me, because I, I guess it's kind of starting understanding how old I am these days. But 57 years since he gave that, you know, that civil rights speech of, I had a dream, or I have a dream. And it's not just that speech that basically changed a lot for this world, but it's the man himself changed the world forever. And I, you know, and I, I kind of confess, you know, I've come a long ways myself in my view of things about civil rights over the years, and I, maybe hopefully on both sides. That doesn't mean we're there all the way. But at the same time, when I think about it, I mentioned Martin Luther King because... What he did is he saw a need. He saw a crisis. He saw what was actually an evil. And he sought to change it. He literally put his life on the line. And when you think about it, he put his imperfect and flawed life on the line. But that was the only life he had to offer. I'm not going to excuse or justify anything that you may or may not know about him that you don't like or you think was not correct or whatever errors he had. Uh, But sometimes we need to look at ourselves the same way. Well, we put our lives on the line. And when we do, I won't excuse or justify my sins or flaws, nor your sins and your flaws. When we wait for that perfect person to come along and do what we want, we're going to be late waiting for quite a while. Instead, we use the life that God has given us. On the other hand, it may be if you and I wait until, until we find a struggle, you know, or, or we look for some... How long does it take you to wait? You know, if, you're, if your excuse for not doing anything is... Well, I'm waiting for something to come along. Basically, what do you really need to do? I think all we really need to do is walk outside the door and start looking. How long will it take you to walk outside your house before you see a need? How long will it take before you have an opportunity to feed someone, to clothe someone, to comfort someone, to love someone in word and deed? You know, and I... And I hear sometimes my own prayers when I say, you know, look for an opportunity. You know, God, give me an opportunity to serve. Help me. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I know I'm putting my own views and things, but I wonder sometimes if God hears my prayers and groans and say, Mark, do you have eyes? Mark, do you have ears? Just go out and see what's there. Just take a walk outside and see where the struggles are. There's a quote that I've uh, heard a lot of times, and uh, I sometimes use it, and it, it says basically, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. But there's another quote that I've heard that's similar to that, and it says, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a book. Now, right off the bat, you might hear that, and you say, well, wait a minute, Mark, he, he did send a book. He sent the scriptures. He sent the Bible. We're supposed to do that, what God's word says. I know, but what does John 3, 6, 3.16 say, For God so loved the world that he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he sent someone here to live the life that we're supposed to. You know, the, problem, the difference between the book and the son is you get the book, you can study the book, you can read the book, you can hear the book, 
We can analyze the book. We can believe the book. But when the son came, he lived, I guess you could say, he lived the book. He be, the word of God was in his life. It was all that really mattered. You know, there's this disciple one time, because Christ constantly, what's his call? Follow me. And that doesn't mean that he's starting in a parade and he hopes that we're going to follow suit. But he wants us to follow him in what he does and what he says and who he is. There's a story in John chapter 13. Jesus is in the upper room. And if, if you kind of piece together what took place in the upper room, looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it even brings a fuller picture to it. Because the other Gospels tell you that even at the Last Supper, they were arguing their favorite argument of all time. Who's the greatest? And at that point, Jesus gets up, takes a basin and a towel, girds himself like a slave, like a servant, and begins washing feet. And when he's done, he says, For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I tell you that a slave is not greater than his master, nor the one who sends greater than the one who is sent. And then here's the, here's the power of it all. He says, If you know these things, you are blessed. Oh, I stopped, didn't I? Mm -hmm. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And don't, don't just apply those words to what took place in the upper room. Don't just apply them to the ritual. You know, some churches have that ritual now of foot washing. You know, and if we were telling you we were having foot washing Sunday, you know, next week, it might be our lowest attendance. I don't know. <laughs> Either you don't want to wash somebody's feet or you don't want somebody washing your feet. And if you did come, uh, most of you would probably have pristine feet. That's not the point. The point was he served. And he said, do what I did. He says, you know these things. You know the truth. Blessed are you if you do these things. Don't apply it just to this one situation. Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Full of grace and truth. Well, another time there's a lively discussion taking place. And the discussion... There's a legal analyst in the crowd. And this legal analyst asks the question, because Jesus has been preaching. And he talks about, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, if you're going to ask Jesus one question, I'm not sure what question you would ask. But the, the best question that was asked of Jesus repeatedly, sometimes with different motives, was, well, what's the most important thing to, to believe or to know or to do? What's the greatest commandment? And so he always goes to Deuteronomy and then to Leviticus. And he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So the legal analyst in the crowd says to him, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells that story that we know about the Good Samaritan. And Jesus wins the debate that day because he tells, tells him, he says, after telling the whole story, he says, which of these three men proved to be the neighbor and the lawyer answers he goes well the one who showed mercy and then it's good answer now what and Jesus does go and teach the same no 
He doesn't say go and teach the same. He says go and do the same thing. Or if you like your King James, that's the one I was raised on. Go and do thou likewise. Hope you understand it either direction. He's not just there to tell him the next time, Mr. Legal Analyst, the next time, Mr. Scribe or Rabbi, you go and teach on these things. This is what I want you to teach. He says, no, this is what I want you to live. This is what I want you to be. It's working now. So anyhow, you know, we've spent so many years trying to teach the right thing, knowing the correct doctrine, and how much emphasis do we put on go and do the right thing? It's not the one that talks about the cup of water that is blessed. It's the one who gives the cup of water. It is, Jesus says, because for whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. You ever go back and read this chapter and see where the whole discussion got started? Because it's kind of interesting if you do, because when you're reading this, basically John's the one that comes up with this. I always, you know, John normally is a pretty good guy, but every now and then, uh, you know, his nickname, Son of Thunder, you know, him and his brother. And so Jesus runs up to Jesus one time, or I'm sorry, John runs up to Jesus one time with a complaint. And he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he wasn't following us. <laughs> John's complaint is that there's somebody out there doing the right thing and the good thing. Why does that bother John so much? You know, well, maybe if you looked at what the average day of the 12 disciples was, uh, they followed Jesus and watched him do the work. Uh, he sent them out on a couple different mission trips where they went out and did the work. But most of the time, what the disciples did is watch Jesus, listen to Jesus, and follow Jesus. And this man has the audacity, whoever he was, to do a good deed, but he's not part of their group. Jesus then tells him, he says, don't hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And it's at that point that Jesus comes out and says, that right after that, he says, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say he will not lose his reward. In other words, what is Jesus saying? The faith, the gospel, the life is about action. Not just words, not just beliefs. Not just getting it all correct, getting all, you know, the, the dots and tittles correct on your, on your Greek alphabet. Kind of lesson kind of makes me a little bit nervous because when we go through these scriptures and we're looking and, and pulling these out of different places out of the gospel and out of various books of the New Testament or, or Old Testament, you could go there also, <clears throat> makes me a little nervous. Maybe it makes you a little bit nervous because aren't we saved by grace? Through faith. You know how often I hear that argument? All I bring up is baptism sometimes. Because, you know, what does it say in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. What does it say in Acts 22.16? Arise and be baptized. Washing away your sins. And somebody will raise their hand and say, no, no, no. We're not saved by something like that. We're saved by grace through faith and nothing else. And I always think, 
well, you don't actually have to do anything. I'll do it all for you. I'll be the one that dunks you. I'll be the one, you know, we're just obeying the word. But then when you get to something like this, where faith seems to be defined by the life that we live, do we protest? And do we say, well, I understand that, you know, you should give that cup of cold water. I understand that you should help that, you know, man like the Samaritan did. You know, I understand that you should do all these things, but really, I don't really need to because I'm saved by grace through faith. Well, we know the other verses also. Because all in Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus preaches one time after another after another, of saying, don't just claim it, but live it. Repeatedly through the... the you know, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the toughest sermon in the entire Bible. We talk about it. He didn't want us to talk about it. He wants us to live it. So he finally there in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And if you keep reading there, it's also a discussion between not only doing what Christ says, but also doing... You know, not doing what you th want. You know, a lot of times we can do something and claim it's in the name of God. And he says, I didn't ask for that. But he says, it's not the one who says, Lord, Lord, that comes to my kingdom. It's the one who actually does the will of my father. He's the one that will enter. And then you look over in the book of James and James says it like this. He says, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but what's the opposite of a forgetful hearer? An effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. Makes you a little bit nervous, doesn't it? Because we want to say, by grace we have been saved, not by works. It's the gift of God. They won't want anybody boasting. And a lot of churches will, that's where you hang your hat on on this verse, I almost wonder sometimes why we need any of the rest of the verses. Like, now we need the story about the manger so we can have Christmas, and we need the story about the resurrection so we can have Easter. But I'm not sure what they do with the rest of the New Testament. I embrace grace as my only hope. Mm -hmm. Do not mistake that. I am glad that the Lord forgives, and I'm glad that my forgiveness is not based on how good I am. It's based on his love. And, but I also embrace every other text in Scripture. The complete gospel. You know, it's, a lot of people have a one-dimensional gospel. We are people, though, who are saved by grace, but we are people with a purpose. We are people who are destined for hope, for living the love of God here as we live on earth. There's a letter... At this point, we'll just go into the book of Hebrews and study the whole letter. No, we don't have time for that. But if you've ever read Hebrews, and I hope you have, it's a very powerful letter. I think a lot of it gets lost on us because he talks about things that are very unfamiliar to us. It's kind of deep in some ways for us today. But first century, it wasn't deep at all. You and I go to Hebrews and we read it and you go there and you look, you have all these teachings on rituals and on sacrifices, on prophecies of comparing the old covenant to the new covenant and we have to study and analyze it the priesthood of christ we get caught up studying about melchizedek when the whoever wrote the hebrew letter when he wrote that 
to the churches that received that letter, he wasn't telling them anything new. Be sort of like me telling you a little bit of stories about, you know, American history and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. They knew every story that he was teaching them. But then they saw the real message that he had. And instead of getting detailed like what we will, we like to dissect verses. You know, we'll read one verse. What does that mean? It means what it says. It says what it means. We'll read the next verse and go on. This letter, if you were in that church in the first century, a church main, made up mainly of Hebrews or Jewish people, it hit them like a punch in the face. They got it. It's a simple message. And the message is all the, all the message is, you know, we get all the details of Jewish versus Gentile and Jewish versus New Testament. The message they got was don't quit. Don't give up. Be faithful. And for heaven's sake, do not go backward. He tells them, don't forsake the assembly, as is the habit of some. But encourage you one another all the more as the day is drawing near. Now, unfortunately, that's, that's what we, the one verse we love to flock to a lot of times in the book of Hebrews. And we come away from that saying, we offer church three times on Sunday and once on Wednesdays. Where were you? Well, come. We won't turn you away. We want you here. But his message was, don't quit because you have a role. You have a duty. You have a life that is important. We need to not forsake the assembly. We need to come together and encourage one, one another because time is short. There's so much into this, in this letter. It's a very powerful letter. But what does he say in Hebrews chapter 6? He says, For God is not unjust as so to forget your work and, your, and the love which you have shown towards his name. And having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He says what life is about as a Christian is what you do. How you reach out, how you serve, how you bless other people. And you don't bless people with a hand signal. You bless them with your actions, with your words, with your compassion. We don't just come here to believe. We come here to serve. And so now when you go back and read that verse again in Hebrews chapter 10, notice what else it says there. Not only it says to, you know, let us hold fast the confession without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembly. We don't just come here to listen and to believe. We get together to discuss, to pray, to plan, and to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. We're children of the Messiah, and the Messiah came here to touch lives and to change lives, to bless, to lift up, to comfort, and to save. As you keep going through Hebrews, two very powerful verses in chapter 11. First one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And when you read that verse, isolate it, just you know, pull it out of the scriptures, put it on a plaque, place it on the wall. It's a feeling verse, isn't it? 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So we say, I believe, and I'm waiting for heaven, and I believe things that I can't even see. But then look at verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Okay, that still, still fits off pretty much in, in, the, in the spiritual mental capacity. But do you remember what follows at this point? Because we call Hebrews 11 the chapter of faith. And it's like it has the stories of heroes at that point from there forward. The next 36 verses that follow that verse we just read record story after story after story. The lives of men and women whose deeds whose actions and works changed that world. So what we call the story of faith, the chapter of faith, it's one story of another, not of people who sat and believed and had mental agreement on the proper doctrine and how you should do things. It's people who live the life. People whose lives and deeds change the world. Faith is not something that's in juxtaposition to works. Faith is a duet of works and belief. The duet of a God lover's life. The people who really love God, they believe, and because they believe, they do. The two things go hand in hand. There's so many different powerful verses that you can look at at this point. But it's almost like when we're getting towards the end of the book now, we get all the way to chapter 13, it's as if he finally kicks the door open of the building and says, look outside. Therefore, after everything he said about what it means to be a Christian and why we don't want to go backward and, and why we believe and what happens in the lives of people who believe, look at the examples of the lives of people who believe. So finally he says, therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. At that point, you have an image there of Jesus being driven out of the city of Jerusalem and taken to Calvary's hill, Golgotha, and crucified. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there for you to say, yes, I've heard the story, and I believe the story, and I trust that it's real. He says, so let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Go outside. Get out beyond your comfort zone. Leave that hiding place. Abandon your comfortable religion. Now I realize wherever two or three of us are gathered together, there he is with us. But more than that, Jesus wants us to go outside to him, outside the camp. He wants us to be out there among the darkness, among the confusion, among those struggles and hurts. And it says, bear his reproach. And what that means is it's not always going to be comfortable doing what God wants. I, you know, I have this idea that when I bless you, you'll bless me back. If you've had experience in life, you know that's not always true. You do what's right regardless. Problem is, I think some of us believe in a very weak Jesus. We've seen those bony guys on the stained glass windows, and he just really can't do a whole lot for us. 
And the second thing you don't believe in is your own ability either. So you listen to a lesson like this, you say, that sounds really good, mister. I just don't think that I can be that powerful to change the world. So the Hebrew writer keeps talking. And the next thing he tells us, one of these flowery verses that when you read it, it just sounds like very religiously, you know, language. So you got to break it down a little bit. Because he says, now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now again, it's a, it's a whole lot there, so maybe you, even after this lesson today, you're going to need to go home and just sit there and read it, and reread it, and read it a third time. You like to dissect verses? Here's one. This is one for you to dissect. And see the strength and the power that's in there. And then answer the call. Because he says, you know, he talks about the God of peace. And he's basically showing you God is able. Remember I talked about that little frail Jesus in the stained glass windows? That's not the Jesus that I believe in. And it's not the one the scriptures teach. He is able. Look at what God has done for us. This is the backdrop to your ministry, to your reaching out, to your faithfulness. The God of peace brought him up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. Blood was shed, and Jesus is Lord. In other words, what the Hebrew writer is saying with that introduction to the next part, he says, you are where you are because of the love of God, the peace of God, and the power of God. God Almighty reached down into the bowels of death and brought forth his son, the great shepherd. Blood was shed for you. Now what? So here's the now what. Even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I don't know exactly what you as an individual should be involved in, should be doing. I just know he has work for you. And as long as we're content to believe and not to do, it'll never happen. You know that Jesus talks about the guy that puts his hands to the plow and then looks back and says, he's not fit. But some of us have never actually put our hands to the plow. Well, we put our minds there, we've thought about it, we've debated about it, we've analyzed it. We just haven't put our hands on the plow. We just haven't gotten involved. He tells us, let us go outside the camp. Remember I told you back in Ephesians chapter 2, we've got that verse there that faith and grace. And we kind of act like, you know, faith is and grace are on one side and works is on the other side. Well, we stopped reading one verse too soon. Because right after he says that in verse 10, here's what he says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good beliefs. No, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You're here. You're saved for ministry. 
for love, for deeds. You and I are here to be the hands and feet of Christ on earth. We are here to leave the comfort zone and go outside the camp. We are here to honor, to serve, to work. It's a God-given ministry each one of us has. If you want to leave here today saying, that's interesting and I would do it if I just knew what to do. Well, maybe reach out. Say, what can I do? Oh, (laughs) there are so many things. We have a list a mile long. (laughs) Maybe we just have to have you sign on on a dotted line somewhere. We are here. Not for feelings, not for emotion, not for mental agreement. We are here to serve. Faith is seen in those who do. Whatever you need, it starts with obedience to the gospel. It starts with saying, I want Jesus Christ to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. It says he died for your sins. And he rose on the third day, victory over death. He says, if you believe, you know, what, what did Philip tell the Ethiopian? If you believe, you may. Then he calls you to be buried with him in baptism, raised to a newness of life, and a newness of life that lives daily to bless his name and to bless others. Whatever your need, we ask you to come now as we stand and sing. Jesus calls us for the